You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show. Of course, there was an attack on the uh, MLK house a couple of weeks ago. Someone tried to set it on fire, so now they put a fence up around it, which, you know, I guess paved paradise and put up a parking lot. It kind of feels like that, going to put a fence around everything. But it is King Day, and joining me right now is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And one of the things Dr. King fought about was uh, fought for was the right to vote. And um, that is the thing that Secretary Raffensperger is most committed to, is to make sure that everybody has the ability to vote. Secretary Raffensperger, thank you so much for being here today. Good morning, Martha. First, let's explain to folks what your role is in the legislative session, because I think there are a lot of people that think you're like this king of your department and that you have all the control over what happens and the rules you have to play by. Explain to people your role with the legislature and then the legislature's role with you. Well, number one, the Secretary of State's office has oversight for elections, and I believe everyone's aware of that. We also handle corporation registration, professional licensing, securities, and charities. And actually, right now, we're looking at licensing reform. We'd like to see some updates in some of the uh, way that the boards are run, and we're working with uh, several state senators and legislators uh, to see what we can get through the House. So that's one of the things we're looking at. And obviously, elections is probably everyone's number one focus, particularly in a presidential year. And then how are we doing on the preparation for that? Well, we're already building ballots for the presidential primary, which will be Tuesday, March 12th. So that's really important that we won the case. So the district lines have all been set. So we're moving forward on that. So we have over uh, 2,500 precincts. And people don't realize how complicated that is because it's uh, an overlay of your state reps, your county commissioners, your state senators, your congressional seats, all of that overlaid within different precincts. So uh, for the June primary this year, we'll probably have over 30,000 different ballot styles for the entire state of Georgia. Then obviously come November, it all converges onto one ballot, so you have about half of that. But it's enough a lot of work to make sure that everyone's located in exactly the right precinct and all the races are show, are correctly identified for when you show up to vote. So yesterday, uh, Robert Kennedy, who's running as an independent, had a rally in, I think, Gwinnett County. And he talked about deadlines for him. He's running as an independent, which I know is different than the presidential preference primary. Um, so what are the, but we're going to have, it looks like a couple, three independent candidates, uh, possibly this year in our election. What is the process for that? Well, he'll need to have a certain number of people that sign a signature. Those signatures would need to be verified. And Georgia has very, uh, strict rules on that. Uh, and so he'll have to qualify as anyone else. So those are long established rules that have been uh, in state law for a long period of time. But at the end of the day, I think in Georgia, it's going to come down to the two uh, top candidates, the Republican candidate and the Democrat candidate. And then you'll obviously have some other minor candidates. But the person who gets the most number of votes would actually then get the uh, number of electors for the state of Georgia. So but, we're a winner. Uh, one thing that we're really... We're a winner-take-all state, right? We're a winner-take-all state. We're a, yes. 
And so we'll just wait and see how that all plays out. But at the end of the day, what we're focusing on with the General Assembly this year is a constitutional amendment to make sure that only American citizens could ever vote in the state of Georgia. With these open borders that we're seeing, voters are demanding that we continue to secure the elections so only American citizens ever vote in our elections. And so we're really excited that uh, the General Assembly has worked on, on introducing and has several signatures on the uh, House side right now for a constitutional amendment that only American citizens would be voting in our election. And Martha, this has broad-based support in the majority of both sides of the aisle. It, we, we've actually seen polling that shows 70% of all Democrats, over 90% of all Republicans believe that only American citizens should vote. And we believe it's not just a, a state law. We have that. But we need to have a constitutional protection so that only American citizens can ever vote in our elections. Now, the legislature also has control over your budget, right? So what is the process there and how involved are you in that? Well, I had my budget meeting this week. Uh, we'll be sitting down with the Joint House and Senate. Uh, we've had meetings uh, during the session. We also meet with the governor's team. The governor just you know, produced his budget. We saw that after the state of the state, and we're digging through that. We know that we, ha- we have at least four additional investigators in his budget. We've asked uh, for additional. But many people don't realize, Mark, that's a great question. Because in South Carolina, which has half the population that we have, they have 69 people in their elections office. North Carolina, which is many people call our peer population, they have 72, and we have about 25. And what we've been telling the General Assembly is that our office is really required to do an awful lot, just like in the other states, but we need additional resources so we can make sure that we can handle all the issues that we have. We also have 159 counties. Those other states have about half the number of counties that we have. So there's just a lot of moving parts. We need additional resources. Absolutely. I'm a small government guy, but when you look at what we do with 20, our 25 people, what, what North Carolina does with our 72, it's pretty darn amazing. So I wanted to ask you one thing about, we've got a question from a listener that I'll get to in just a moment that's on a different subject, but on the election subject, uh, Speaker Burns at the State of the uh, the Eggs and Issues Breakfast said something about replacing the QR code on the ballot with a watermark. And he didn't go into a lot of details on that. But do you can you tell us anything about that? And do you know if that's a movement that you support, number one? And number two, is anything happening with it? Well, first off, our ballots already are watermarked. Already our ballot, we use special ballot paper that has threads in it. So that's already been watermarked and has special uh, threads in it. So that's already been taken care of. That's actually something we've done uh, for the last several years. Uh, as it relates to the QR code and that, that's actually codified in state law with House Bill 316, which was a House bill. And so if they want to change the, you know, the election, uh, process and what they want to do there, that would actually require a change in state law. Uh, what I do know is that former Secretary of State uh, Kent had formed a safe commission back in 2017-2018, and as it worked through that process, what they said they wanted a ballot marking device, which was incorporated in House Bill 316, and then several other measures. Also, any equipment that is used for elections in the state of Georgia has to be certified by the United States Election Assistance Commission. So you and I just can't get in the business tomorrow. The man down the street can't get in the business tomorrow. It has to go through a, a very 
thoughtful and thorough process through certification to the United States Election Assistance Commission. And then we also do our own in-house testing of any machine before it's actually certified for use in the state of Georgia. So we had a question that came in from a listener that said, where does the money for state corporate registration go and how is it used? Uh, 100% of the money that goes for corporations actually goes back to the Darrell Fund. We are, uh, our office is fully funded by ourselves. In other words, the only money that we actually keep in the corporation's office for the Secretary of State's office is when people have their expedite fees. Other than that, when you uh, pay your corporation fee, that 100% of that money goes into the General Assembly, and none of that goes to the Secretary of State's office. Uh, we got another question from a listener that said, how do we stop ballot stuffing in drop boxes? Well, I think with SB 202, the Election Integrity Act of 2021, uh, it was finally codified into law where drop boxes would be, and they would be in the elections office under the visual surveillance of election directors. Also, with uh, going back to House Bill 316, we got the ballot marking devices, ability to join the Electronic Registration Information Center. We also outlawed ballot harvesting. And our wording for our ballot uh, harvesting prohibitions are word for word the same as Arizona, and Arizona law was upheld by the Supreme Court. So we now have you know, the same protections with Supreme Court protections to make sure that ballot harvesting is illegal in the state of Georgia. And, and I guess what the biggest problem was, I mean, in my view, uh, in 2020, because of the way the, the ballot boxes were used, they were just kind of out there. They were, they, there were very few parameters around them. It was an emergency-type situation. That there was some, um, you know, some some practices that I think were very quest- questionable around those ballot boxes. But you feel comfortable now that with Senate Bill 202, that there are enough protections around them to keep them safe as a way well, for people to drop off their ballots. Well, a couple things. First, the ballot boxes, There's you get per county, one per county as an absolute minimum, and then one for every 100,000 voters. So... For example, Gwinnett County and Fulton County would probably have about 10 boxes since they have about a million people. And then another county with 300,000 people would have then three uh, absentee ballot uh, boxes. But other than that, it's based on population, and then they all have to be on government property. And by and large, what you're seeing in most of the counties, because most of the counties have less than 100,000 people, it's in the county election office right there as you walk right in. And so the workers are right there. They can see who's dropping these off. But Martha, what people don't understand, and they need to understand, we've gone back, and that's our free will choice, but voters in Georgia in the 2022 election, what you saw is about 65% of all voters are voting early. We have 17 days of early voting, three weeks, Monday to Friday, plus two Saturdays. About 30% of all voters are showing up on election day. And the other 5 to 6% voters are voting absentee. Back in 2020, because of the pandemic, we had about 20 to 30% of the voters were voting absentee. We've gone back to our historical way of how we like to vote in Georgia, which is in person, and 95% of all voters are voting in person. I've got two more questions from listeners, if you've got a couple more minutes to spend with us. Is that, is, will yeah. that work for you? Okay. Yeah, so one listener works. wanted to know that they've had a hard, they say they've had a hard time getting by, getting in by phone. And wanted to know if you have a lot of openings in your office and how many people you need to hire. Uh, yes, we do have openings. Uh, and so we're, like every other organization, 
uh, we're struggling for talent. And so we're always looking for that. So please send in your application and we'll take a look at it. We'd be grateful for your uh, support. We're always looking for hardworking individuals. Yeah, because that's a, that's a hard thing. I mean, the get there are a lot of online options, but there's times when you need to get on the phone with somebody and get something straightened out. And I think that it's it's a challenge everywhere. It's not just in the Secretary of State's office. Every Everything that I interact with, uh, it's a problem as far as how I was on the phone the other day doing something for my in-laws and the wait time was an hour and seven minutes. And I was just like, oh, come on, man. I don't have an hour and seven minutes to spend on the phone. <laughs> so anyway. Well, trust me, our, our wait time is not that long. Okay, but, good. Uh, we want to we make sure we buy great you know, customer service. We think that's really important. And that's why we ask for additional resources. Going back to you know the budgeting, many people don't realize that's what it relates to professional licensing, that we take in about $25, $30 million that all these license holders, you know, send to the state of Georgia, (coughs) excuse me, and yet we have to run that on $8 million. And so we've just said if we could keep a a larger portion of that money that comes into the state, then we could provide that, you know, prompt, speedy, uh, you know, responses that voters and uh, what license holders would like to get from us. So there's a, and one final question, there's a lot of litigation going on um, that relates to the Secretary of State's office, you know, and some of it's in the news, some of it's not. Just what's your overall view on the legislation that you have coming up and, and is it under control in your view? Yes, I think it is. In fact, talking about some of the lawsuits, going back to making sure that only American citizens are voting, we're actually being sued right now by the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, and they're trying to stop us from doing citizenship verification as you're going through the registration process. And about 8 to 10 of our new Georgia voters actually get their registration through Department of Driver Services. And Department of Driver Services does a robust citizenship verification. That's why we're real ID compliant. So those type of lawsuits we're seeing, then we also have ongoing, you know, other cases like the curling case. And when they start, you know, going before a judge, that's when I, you know, say less and I let the process work its way through because we have an excellent legal team. Absolutely. Brad Raffensperger, if people want information, one, about their registration, what's the best way for them to get that, and two, to get to your office? If they're looking at registration, they can go to my voter uh, page. It's mvp.sos.ga.gov, and you can look at and just Google my voter page, Georgia Secretary of State's office, and it'll pop up, and then you can look to see if your name's on there, if you're registered. And then we'll also, all the counties will be sending out new uh, cards to everyone to make sure you're located in your new districts because the new district lines have happened. Uh, we're uh, at, at the Capitol, and you can Google us at sos.ga.gov, and our phone number's on there. Yeah, and you've got a app, too, which I've used before that is very easy to use, where you can look that kind of information up. And we also have the ballot tracking that we'll be using during the, the process of the 2024 election. So if you did want to vote absentee, you can actually track your ballot through the process to see it's been accepted, has it been received by the county, things like that. So we have a lot of tools like that, but we're going to make sure that we keep those lines short because state law requires that lines have to be shorter than one hour. And we have a new uh, automated poll pad check-in, and we're checking in voters in as little as two minutes. And then we're seeing lines are put 15 to 20 minutes, things like that. So it's a great voter experience. And that's why over 90% of all voters, according to UGA MIT polls, showed that Georgians have high confidence in the security and the accuracy of our election system in Georgia. And we're ranked by the Heritage Foundation, Martha, ranked by the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think that number two in the country for voter integrity.
Secretary Raffensperger, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now, who's quickly becoming one of my favorite guests, John Ashbrook is with me from the Ruthless Podcast. And I have to tell you, John, yesterday when I was FaceTiming with my son and his family, he had on his senator hoodie and it was great. <laughs> that is so great, Martha. Thanks for having me back. And, and by the, the way, Kentucky, I have... I the Kentucky have... Stuff? And by the way, I have paid for all my swag. So he has been stitching oh, yeah. it one by one for me. <laughs> that's, that's what funds are for, Martha. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you someday will understand that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so listen, Iowa caucus, that was the little clip um, from this I think it was at 8.30, which would have been 7.30 Iowa time. Uh, I started getting yeah. the alerts on my phone because I was watching the Ruthless Live broadcast on YouTube um, that they called for Trump, which didn't surprise me. Okay. I expected that he was going to win. I just thought the timing was bad, understanding how caucuses work. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it was, it was a totally just another blown moment for the mainstream media. Uh, there was no reason to call it so early. Think about all those people who are driving through the snow to get to a caucus, to participate in something that they've been thinking about and dealing with for so, so long in Iowa. And then CNN blows in the door and it's like, ah, oh, we don't care. We're going to just declare a winner before you've even had a chance to start. So I, I think that it's just another, another notch in the, in the belt against the media they're just so awful i thought the best moment um yesterday well not the best moment one of the best moments of the coverage yesterday is when uh smug was uh went to a coffee shop and the only people there were what you like like to call journos only the journos were in the coffee (laughs) shop everybody else was at home yeah, well, I mean, it, because it was true. The entire uh, New York and uh, Washington media set descended upon Iowa as they as they usually do, and there's some good stuff that goes with that. Iowa gets a lot of attention, um, and a lot of local businesses get a little bump um, in through the process. But it was really funny to to see Smug out there, and he had just he had this just ridiculous white coat on. And um, he, he is very funny. And the guy that he interviewed, uh, let me just say, going back to that clip you played, this guy, Charlie Spieth, Republican attorney, very smart guy. Maybe maybe you've uh, spoken with him before, Martha, but he really knows his stuff. And when he's out there, um, he, when he's out there talking about this, it, it deserves to be listened to. So what next? OK, we're going to New Hampshire the, the polls are much closer there. Nikki Haley's within seven points uh, there. Of course, Ron DeSantis is is at seven. She's at 20 something and Trump's at 30, some 30, something like that. Uh, you know, what next? What are they going to do next? Well, she is pretty strong there. And even the Trump campaign acknowledges that she's strong there. Uh, we talked to Chris Las Vita last night, who was a senior advisor to Trump. And he he laid out what he thought was um, a pretty good case for why they could sweep, but you know maybe New Hampshire is is could go Nikki's way. Um, don't forget also that 
there is uh, Nevada coming up very soon. And Nevada is an interesting uh, state because they have a split process where there's a caucus and a primary. There's a little bit of an internal dispute going on among Republicans in that state. Um, but some of the candidates <clears throat> are in the caucus, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Some of the candidates are in the primary, Nikki Haley. And I think they still have uh, Mike Pence and uh, Tim Scott on the ballot for that primary. So something interesting to watch isn't going to get as much coverage, of course, as, as um, New Hampshire. But it could have an impact on the uh, it could have an impact on the mo- any momentum that Nikki Haley gains um, as her poll numbers continue to strengthen in New Hampshire. Or at least that's what the Trump campaign is going to argue. Um, <clears throat> DeSantis is headed to South Carolina first, but then, then to, uh, New Hampshire after that. Um, you know, he, he, uh, he put a lot of effort, a lot of, a lot of money into Iowa. That was his game plan from the start that he would, um, that he would do well in Iowa because he had great relationships there and, and voters in that state really, really did like him, um, at, out of the gate. But <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, um, you know, those, those voters who, were initially open to him, uh, changed their preference and, and voted for Trump ultimately. So I think that, I think that you, what we saw in Iowa was very interesting. And I'm just, look, I think it's important for this process, this process to play out. You know, it's, it's important for if Trump is going to be the nominee again, he's, he's got to earn it. And there are other people in this country who are strong leaders like Ron DeSantis, one of the, one of the best Governors, maybe the second best governor um, in the country. Uh, he is, um, you know, he's got a lot of lot to offer, and it's important to it's important to have the process because it can help shape President Trump um, if he is ultimately our nominee. Well, and there's this weird dance that's been going on where people are trying not to make the Trump people mad, but then they're trying to dis- distinguish themselves. And I'm talking about candidates here because you mentioned second best governor in the country. Well, of course, I think Brian Kemp is the best governor in the country. And it's like the I'm name that shall not be mentioned, you know, because, because you know, they were very similar, both DeSantis and Kemp, where they had Trump's help in their 2018 elections and barely won. Both of them barely won. Okay. And then they both ran without Donald Trump in their reelections, and they blew the doors off, both of them. And, you know, they but both of them are afraid to say, I shouldn't say they're both afraid to say, but neither one of them will say, hey, I did a heck of a lot better without Trump's help than with Trump's help. Because there's a whole faction of the Republican Party you'll make mad if you say that. So it's a real interesting thing because what, What DeSantis showed, and he hasn't communicated this well enough, is that you could win not only Republicans, but independents and Democrats and come up with 58 percent and be able to govern. And he hasn't communicated that the way he should. No, I I agree. And I think that, you know, I think there's there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of they're going to they're going to be books written on <laughs> what happened and and why didn't it why didn't it work one of the chapters could probably be on lack of attacking which kind of goes to what you're saying and the thing is right out of the gate DeSantis had a huge victory remember everybody remembers that you just talked about it 
And if he thought that he was going to run for president, he should have started attacking his opponent on day one. And his opponent in the race is Donald Trump. And you can't just pretend to be Donald Trump and then think that Donald Trump is running against you is going to go easy. He's not. He, he, Trump was so aggressive on DeSantis from, from day one. What does everybody know DeSantis for? Well, it's because he stuck up to the man during COVID. And he was and he was fighting back against the federal government. Well, Trump has spent the last nine months telling people that the opposite is true, that DeSantis is the problem on COVID. And, and it's like he says it so many times and he attacks so frequently. Uh, and so I'm sorry, so fervently that it's like Trump's argument won the day. And so half of the people in Iowa think, oh, well, there's nothing, you know, Trump would be better than DeSantis anyway. And so he's got a. I think he needed to be a little bit more aggressive on Trump and just, you know, not worry about what happens at the end. If you're, either you're going to win or you're going to lose the race anyway. And so if you're going to try, you might as well get aggressive. So I've been saying for a couple of months that we've established, I think, that Trump people are going to stay with Trump no matter what. OK, and mm-hmm. it's 50 or 51 or 48 or 45. It's somewhere in that neighborhood, depending on where you are. Um. And that Donald Trump needs to understand he's got those folks and start moving and trying to get some of the people back like me who voted for him twice and not sure, you know, it's not going to I'm not voting for him in my primary. Um, And I heard a little bit of that last night in his conciliatory speech. I don't know if that's a change. You never know with Donald Trump, but he seemed a little more speaking to the entire group of Republicans than just the ones that love him? Well, I certainly hope that that continues, you know, because that, at a, at a minimum, that's, it, that's required to be able to, to win the race. Um, and and you got to think he doesn't want to be embarrassed again by Joe Biden. And, um, you know, Biden looks like such a beatable character. I mean, the, the worst possible scenario for trump is that he gets the nomination again and he loses to joe biden again and um and that's how he goes down in history and so he's 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 really rolling the dice for his legacy here um and you got to think that he understands i know i know his his advisors around him are are telling him this you got to think he understands that it takes all the Republicans and then some to win the election. And you can't get all the Republicans by alienating people. And I think last night, you're right. You saw the beginning of what could be an effort to consolidate the party around them. So Lisa in Gainesville said, the Ruthless podcast is my favorite. I listened to Verdict with Ted Cruz, Tom Smiley, and Ben Ferguson, to name a few. But the Ruthless fellas are number one. In fact, on my way to work this morning, I was listening to the podcast from yesterday. So good. So happy when you have John on. Keep it up. That's Lisa in Gainesville. So you got a lot of fans here, John. I got one last well, question. You got, you, Go ahead. You yeah. got a great. You got a. You got a great audience, and it's no surprise, Martha. I mean, Thank I'm you. just. I'm just thrilled that you would have me on the show because you really are a legend. And Georgia is very lucky to have you on radio every day. They really are. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I want to ask you one last question about y'all's favorite Vivek Ramaswamy, oh, who, yeah. who, not surprisingly, came up and said, "Hey, I really am 100 percent for Trump. I'm out of this race." Yeah. 
Yeah, he, uh, you know, I go back and forth on him, uh, to be honest with you. Sometimes he says something that just seems like it makes so much sense, and you're like, man, why doesn't he say more of that? And then he says something dumb, and you're like, wow, I do not want to, was even thinking? So I, obviously, the Trump campaign put him in a locker uh, over the weekend with that truth social post that he's not MAGA. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Vivek, he, he announced he's for Trump. And then to your point earlier about Trump trying to consolidate, Trump said something nice about Vivek last night. He didn't, he didn't keep the throttle down on, on, um, on attacking him. So, you know, I think, uh, I think he's, he, uh, he's obviously got a, a lot of money, very personally successful guy. He's obviously a very talented guy and he seemed to like, what he was doing. I think we'll find out um, over the coming years what he intends to, how he intends to grow the movement that he started to build. Absolutely. John Ashbrook, if people want to know more about the Ruthless Podcast, how can they do that? Just go to ruthlesspodcast.com or you can download it on any of the podcast services. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Martha. Take care. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Heath Garrett is joining me right now. Heath Garrett is a Republican consultant, came uh, out of kind of the Isaacson. I like to call it the Isaacson School. Uh, That's how I met Heath many years ago. But he's also worked on campaigns all around the country and had a very big win rate. So, Heath, how are you? Martha, it's great to be with you, but it's cold outside. It's very cold outside, but not as cold as it was in Iowa. And I was not there this year, but I went in 08, and it was very cold like that in 08 in Iowa. I think everybody ought to do it once because it is a unique and fun experience to be a part of an Iowa caucus. Absolutely. It's just one of those great traditions, and uh, it brings out sometimes the best and the worst in candidates, but they have to meet the people which is what's so great about the way they do it. So yesterday, I wasn't surprised that Donald Trump won. I, I'm glad that uh, Nikki Haley and DeSantis kind of closed closed the gap just a little bit, but it still was a big win for Donald Trump. He was much more conciliatory in his tone uh, in the speech, I, and I hope that lasts because I think the only way – and it looks more and more like he's going to be the nominee. Uh, but the only way we're going to win this thing is by uniting Republicans. And it can't be a division game. It has to be an addition game. So what are your thoughts in looking at the Iowa caucus? You know, looking at it, I thought that Donald Trump, <clears throat> he exceeded his expectations, right, which was smart on their part. They never really got into predicting he'd be over 50 it looked like he might be under 50, and then he gets to 51. So he wins the expectation game by having gotten over 50 and really managed those expectations. I do feel like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley both have an argument for going forward, but I felt like they both lost the expectations game. You know, Ron DeSantis had come in thinking he had a real shot to win Iowa six months ago, and that slowly declined over time. And then Nikki Haley, uh, it looked like she was going to come in a strong second, according to, quote, polls. We know how those work out. And she comes in a close uh, third. It's just enough for them to go into New Hampshire and South Carolina and keep competing. But it doesn't feel like it's enough to really derail the Trump momentum at this time. 
You know, I, I think that there is a good chance. I mean, the last poll in New Hampshire has her seven points behind Donald Trump. Nobody's been seven points behind Donald Trump in any poll in more than a year. Everything's been double digits, you know, all of that. So I think she has a chance in New Hampshire. But this message, and look, you and I like to talk about, um, you know, ideas. We've got to get, I think we've established that Donald Trump's people are going to stay with him no matter what. There's a lot of other Republicans, roughly about 49% of Republicans, that voted for him twice, uh, maybe voted for him once, uh, aren't comfortable. They're looking for somebody else. I'm one of those Republicans. I'm not going to vote for him in the primary in Georgia. But but that we want to feel like he's talking to us and not talking against us. And I saw a little glimmer of that last night, him understanding that you got to bring the people along that you've lost, and then you've got to add to that. Without saying it, I'm going to say it. He's got to do what Brian Kemp did in his reelection and what Ron DeSantis did in his reelection. They added to their majority instead of taking away. No, that's definitely uh, Trump's big challenge. Uh, as you look at it, Martha, you can make the argument, well, he got 51% in Iowa, but that was a really low turnout. So at the end of the day, 49% of really hardcore Republicans in Iowa are looking for an alternative. Even more people in New Hampshire and in these other states that aren't quite as conservative as Iowa you know, is, they're all looking for an alternative. And so I thought he was smart to be more conciliatory uh, it had definitely become combative here. A lot of negative advertising by all three of the candidates against each other in the last two or three weeks. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how long he, Donald Trump can maintain that conciliatory, uniting attitude. Uh, we all know that if that had been kind of his attitude, we might, we might not have ever lost the presidency to begin with. And so the question is, can he stay disciplined enough through New Hampshire? And I'm with you. Uh, I do think Nikki Haley still has a chance to win New Hampshire or make it a really, really close race. And that's why it's not over yet either. So Donald Trump does have a lot of work to do to kind of seal the deal. You know, one of the things, one of the biggest kind of criticisms that DeSantis threw at Haley was this uh, idea that while she was governor, she embraced these Chinese businesses that came into her state. And, uh, you know, I, uh, first of all, I think probably when she, um, when she brought that business into her state, she probably did, you know, say, hey, it was great to have you here. We're good to have you here, all of that kind of stuff. But is that a fair way to go after somebody? Because governors are, I mean, we've got our governor who's going to go to Davos and try to bring European businesses in and worldwide businesses in. We have through the Economic Development Office, offices around the world where Georgia's trying to get businesses to come in. But, but, the, but the view on China has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. How would you advise someone to navigate that? Oh, look, China is one of the top issues, particularly for Republican but primary voters across the country, and it should be. There's a real national security risk or threat is our great, greatest global threat, both economically and militarily. So I would advise a candidate to be really tough on China, but to always uh, do kind of like a Ronald Reagan or like a Brian Kemp would be and say, look, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to do business with you. We're going to trust, but verify, but we're not going to do business with everybody, you know? And so I do think that's one of the actually where areas where Donald Trump was probably a leader in the global world of kind of identifying China as a real problem and a threat. And uh, he then called balls and strikes, right? They're still a huge trading partner with the United States of America. We got to, we got to pick and choose those things that are state run entities uh, but you definitely have to be tougher on China than you were uh, 10 years ago. And I don't think that's, by the way, I don't think that's a fair criticism of the governor because in Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis recruited Chinese investment and business. Uh, it's in every, it's all 50 states of the country. But the question well, is, what are we going to do about China in the future? So I was a buyer at Riches in my other life in the 80s, and we were the first group within Riches to do business directly with China when the markets opened up in the in the early 80s. And it was hand-knit sweaters. I was a children's buyer, and that's the first place that we did it. And, I mean, they were fabulous quality, very cheap. We had no idea there were little children working their fingers to the bone. I mean, we just were looking at it as a good quality product. And we brought in, we made a lot of money on it, and it was encouraged. Mm -hmm. Now, the big difference is you paid them the minute you placed the order, which is not how we dealt with our American um, you know, it, it, our American people that we did business with, we and you had no recourse. So if they shipped in everything wrong, you still had to take it and it was paid for and you had to figure out what to do with it. So they always have had the upper hand in in these kinds of negotiations because and you're probably going to think I'm crazy, but we've paid a really high price for cheap goods from China because, no, we, you know, because we've given up a lot of what we were doing here on our own. And I think that really came to a head during COVID because I don't think anybody realized how much basic goods were being produced in China. I don't think anybody realized, you know, except for a few of our leaders. We've been talking about this for five or ten years, even since Senator Isaacson was on foreign relations for the state of Georgia, that, that when you look at computer chip, you know, manufacturing, when we look at pharmaceuticals, and when we look at artificial intelligence, these are areas where the Chinese have caught up to us, and they're out-competing us in many ways. And these are real national security threats. And we, and we as a nation, uh, every day I ask my children, what are they doing in their education to prepare to compete with the Chinese in the 21st century, right? But most of America is not asking that question, and we need to wake up and start asking that Wait, question. Wait, you sound like a really fun dad, Heath. <laughs> <laughs> Just when they think they're doing well. Just, what are you doing to keep up with the Chinese today? You right? know, but I have, you know, a real faith. And I think this is what Nikki Haley speaks to to some degree because she's got a very positive message. I think DeSantis has had a little trouble finding his voice but he does have a positive message, too. He just doesn't communicate it. But I think that that's what people really want is a more positive message, because I do believe that our system overall, even though people are feeling down about it, all of that, we're going to be fine. But we've got to get back on track with good leadership, less chaos. And I'm in the camp where I'd like to see younger people. But I'll accept what the voters put forth. Because I believe in the system. Do I sound really corny, Heath? No, you really don't sound corny. You sound optimistic. And look, that's what we have to be. We still live in the greatest country on the face of the earth. We are the global leader in every way. And we need to make sure we protect our form of representative democracy, our capitalism, our free enterprise system. These are the things we ought to be proud of. And I do think that if... 
if Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis can capture a little bit more positivity and that uniting attitude, then they still have a chance in this race. And if not, maybe they can force Donald Trump to kind of come back to that uniting uh, pro-American uh, positive attitude so we're not just tearing each other down. Absolutely. I mean, we got to work harder on that. And I appreciate you being with us today. Um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Martha. Y'all have a great day. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining us on the phone right now is Congressman Andrew Clyde. And, Andrew, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Martha. Great to be with you. Thank you. So yesterday, 14 Democrats in the House of Representatives joined with Republican colleagues to pass a resolution denouncing President Joe Biden's border policy and condemning national security and the public safety crisis along the southwest border. There's also negotiations going on uh, between the leadership uh, in the White House related to the budget deal. And there's a lot of other things happening. So why don't you just give us a quick update on where we are right now, and more importantly, where you are in the negotiations. You know, uh, Martha, it was pretty amazing last night what you just mentioned, that 14 Democrats moved across the aisle and joined us to condemn Joe Biden's border policies. I mean, that was a really strong statement that we put out, of the resolution, and to have 14 Democrats come across the aisle just shows how painful that Joe Biden's disastrous border policies have been for the United States. And so I'm, I'm very, very encouraged by that. Uh, you know, what needs to happen, and, and I preface this, uh, what needs to happen in our funding fight that's going to happen today and tomorrow is we need to attach that border policy. We need an amendment to attach H.R. 2, which is the strongest border policy ever passed by the House of Representatives. We need to attach that to the continuing resolution. Uh, otherwise, we are not prioritizing the number one issue in our nation, and that is border security. You know, here they're worried about, the, you know, someone else's border, Ukraine's border. We should be worried about the border of the United States because if we don't have a secure border, we don't have national security. They, those two things go hand in hand. If you see what has come across our southern border, just those that we have caught, over 300 suspected terrorists since Joe Biden has been in office. You know, last month, December, was the largest number of illegal aliens to ever come across the southern border, 302,000. That doesn't include the gotaways. You know, we don't know how many terrorists are in the count of gotaways. This is a massive deal for the, the United States. It is a, what's happening on the southern border is treacherous, and we could be seeing another terrorist attack because of an open southern border. This is an issue that is a self-inflicted wound by the Biden administration, and we have to fix it. It has to be priority number one. And I don't mean, you know, just a facade of policy that looks like we're going to do something, but they're really not going to implement it. This has to be policy and metrics attached to it that ensures that that policy uh, is actually completed. You know, the uh, campaign manager for the Biden campaign was on with Brett Baer a couple of nights ago, and he was spouting all this stuff about uh, the border and that it really wasn't that big of a problem and that it wasn't that good under the Trump administration. And Brett Baer stopped him and he said, look, you're, you can't possibly be saying 
that things are not worse now than they were. And he didn't have an answer for that. But but there does seem to be some negotiating going on with the leadership from the House and the leadership from the Senate, as well as the president. Do you feel confident that some kind of deal is going to be struck? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, well, if a deal gets struck, from what I have seen from what's coming across on the Senate, uh, it is not a good deal. It is not actual border security. It's a bunch of fluff. It's a facade. It's, it's, it's legislation to say, hey, we fixed the border, but not really fix the border. Joe Biden doesn't want to fix the border. The only reason he's actually doing anything is because his poll numbers are consistently falling. They're in the tank. And he's seeing that, and, and it's scaring them. And as a result, they are now willing to discuss border. We have to be strong. We have to be resolute. We have to be absolutely, um, you know, stand in the gap that what has to happen is H.R. 2. H.R. 2 is the fix for the southern border. H.R. 2 with metrics to ensure that H.R. 2 is actually implemented. So if there was a a deal on spending that, you know, there was some top line numbers that were agreed to a couple of weeks ago. And even if if the Biden administration just went back to actually enforcing the law, which they're not doing now. OK, so I agree with you that H.R. 2 is the best uh, comprehensive immigration reform. But but the but the truth is he's not even enforcing the laws that we have now. So, you know. Congressman Nathan Deal, back when he was the congressman, said you've got to either enforce the laws or change them. So what would you say about that? Well, you're right. He's not enforcing the law. He has the absolute authority right now to close the border, to to fix this issue with the current law, with the current um, tools that President Biden has. But he's unwilling to do it. So therefore, we must in the House force him to do it. And H.R. 2, with metrics to ensure that H.R. 2 is implemented, is the solution to force President Biden to do it. Um, but but he's, he's not willing to, and he simply wants to make the problem go away in the media. He doesn't really want to fix it. He just wants it to make it, to deceive the public, to make it look like it's fixed. And that's what this border deal uh, with the, that the Senate's working on right now. And uh, it's not something that I would accept. H.R. 2 has got to be the minimum um, for securing the border. It's the greatest issue. It's the number one issue in our country right now. Now, Speaker uh, Johnson Speaker Johnson said last night that the language on the Senate bill has not been released yet and that he was willing to wait until he saw what the language actually was. Are you are you in that same camp? Uh, well, I'll tell you that we had Senator Langford over here, and he's one of the Republicans right. um, that is actually working on it. And he gave us a bit of a of a sneak preview on it, and I, I didn't like it. Okay, uh, it's okay. not. It's too weak. It's incredibly weak. Uh, and so, yes, we should definitely be waiting to see what is actually in it. All right, um, before we make a final decision. But from what we have heard so far. Uh, it's not it's not a good bill. It's not good uh, policy. So what's the next two days going to look like for you guys? What have they told you to be prepared for? Well, it, you know, the focus is going to be funding the government because, you know, that's our responsibility. But we need to fund it responsibly, Martha. Uh, we don't need to be increasing spending. That's exactly what this deal is. You know, you talked about the top line numbers being agreed to already. When you when you do that and you agree to a top line number, then you have given away your leverage. 
Uh, we're not going to get policy. We're going to get increased spending. Uh, the deal actually increased the spending uh, for FY24 by $82 billion over what we had worked on in the appropriations process and how we had done amendments to actually reduce spending uh, by about $13 billion from the Financial Responsibility Act cap of 704. Uh, but now we're going to spend at 773, uh, which is $82 billion more than the appropriations process so far and $30 billion more than uh, FY23. So we're just spending more money here and we're not getting any um, Republican policy wins uh, we're spending more than Nancy Pelosi. We're, we're implementing Joe Biden's woke policies and his disastrous policies. This is not a win for the American people. So let's assume y'all come to some sort of deal between now and tomorrow at midnight. And mm-hmm. at that point in time, then you've got to get onto regular order for the next year's budget. Do you believe that you guys can do that? Are you in place to be able to actually start taking up bills, appropriations bills, and voting on them in the appropriate way? Oh, I think the House is, absolutely. The issue, Martha, and this is the true issue right here, is the Senate is unwilling to take up the House's appropriation bills. We've passed seven appropriations bills so far. The Senate has not has not conferenced one of them. They have not taken up one of those seven bills yet, and they've had five months to do it. There's no leverage created when you decide on a top-line number. There's no monetary leverage there uh, to force the Senate to take up our appropriation bill. And we're just going to get rolled again unless we use the power of the purse and actually demand that the Senate do it through, through literally, funding of the, of the government. So as we look forward, I mean, one way to break this logjam is to have a bigger majority in the House to have the majority back in the Senate and to have a Republican president. Now, I say that, but, you know, when we've done that before, we haven't actually done the work, okay? So how do you feel going forward as we go through this year? Well, you're right that if we had a Republican in the White House and we had a Republican Senate, then we would be in a much better position to accomplish both the reduction in spending, and the policy wins that the American people need to get our country back on track. Uh, But we don't have that right now, so we have to work with the tools that we have and do the very best job that that we can possibly do. We have leverage in the House by using the power of the purse. We have to be be willing to do that. We have to go head-to-head with the Senate and say, you know, we, we have funded the government. The Senate has not. If the government shuts down, that is not our fault. It would be the Senate's fault to do that. We have to be able to stand strong on that, Martha, because if we don't, we will consistently be rolled by the Senate. So, Andrew Clyde, if people need to get in touch with you, how can they do that? They can uh, go on our website at clyde.house.gov, and they can uh, put a request uh, in there, uh, it will come directly to my D.C. office, and 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 they can also call our district office, um, and they can call our, our, our D.C. office as well. The district office number is um, um, six, uh, golly, it's That's changed. all right. <laughs> we'll just tell them to look it up. That's no worries. Yeah, it that'll is, work. Yeah, that's absolutely, and it's Clyde.house.gov, right? Yes, it is. Thank all you. right. Thank you so much for ha- for being with us today. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.